the more I read the book of Acts, and hopefully you guys are exploring it with us as we preach on it, the more I'm seeing this entire story is just all God's, right? Like, like God is the one who's author in every cool thing we've seen in the book of Acts. If the spirit isn't present and moving, the stuff we read, the stuff we study, and the stuff we apply, it just doesn't happen, right? And so I've just been continually convicted that we always have to entreat the Lord. And so I'm going to ask you guys to pray one more time with me to bless the word and bless this word and allow it to just change us and make us more like Christ. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we know that uh, in our own effort, in our own strength, God, we're just, uh, we can't accomplish a ton. Our best laid plans, Lord, I think, um, fall apart without you. And so, Lord, even as we seek to open up your word today, to learn from it, to study it, to explore it, and then, God, to go and apply it, Lord, we just ask that your spirit be with us. Holy Spirit, you promise in your presence, God, all sorts of things. You promise joy and refreshment. You promise counsel and wisdom. You promise transformation. And so, Lord, we pray that we would just be good soil to constantly be transformed today and grow into the believers and followers you have us grow into. And I pray for those who are here who do not know you, God, that you would speak to their hearts today, that you would encounter them, and that you would reveal to them, maybe even for the very first time, your goodness, your truth, and your love for them, that they too would join the family. Heavenly Father, would you bless our time today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this guy, he comes home one day, and he's walking this long trail home, okay? And there's just tears welling up in his eyes. And slowly they start to drip down his cheeks, as much as he doesn't like that, because that's just not who he is, right? He's, he's a quote-unquote man's man. So he doesn't cry. But this day, walking home, he comes up to his front door, and he cannot hold it back. And he, and he opens up the door, and he crosses the threshold, and there's his wife and his two kids, and they're sitting on either ends of the table. Dinner's ready. And he's bawling. See, now the wife, she knows this about her husband, right? She, she knows this is not how he acts. Like, he, he doesn't cry, right? He, he's not affected by these things. He doesn't let that get to him. But she also knows that when he does, it's because something terrible has just happened. So in her mind, all these memories start running through from, from the past and, and the fights and the anger and the worry and, and what's going to happen now? What are the next 15 minutes hold for my family? And then she begins to think through, man, you know, he, he just got injured um, and, and so he lost his job and so is it something even worse? What is the next thing that could possibly happen to our family? that would cause my husband, who's so strong, to not be in this moment. And so she's filled with worry and fear and ambiguity. What's about to happen? And so this, this man, he, he tears in his eyes, walks over, and he, he finally sits down at the table just silent. He cannot process the emotion that is flourishing and running through his heart and mind. And all of a sudden, one of the kids gets up the nerve to finally say, Daddy, what's wrong? And he looks over to his kid, and he grabs his little hand, and he says, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Guess what just happened today? And these tears, which looked like fear, looked like anger, looked like frustration, all of a sudden have a new lens, and it's potentially joy. He says, today was the best day. You wouldn't believe what happened. You remember Barnabas? Remember, remember, our, remember our friend Barnabas? The guy, yeah, the guy from the church. We call him the encourager. You wouldn't believe what he did yesterday. Y yesterday... He went and sold his field, babe. Like he sold his field and then he brought all his money to Peter and John. And he said, listen, give to this whoever needs it. And so I was talking with Peter today and I was telling him about our debt. And I was telling him about how we don't even know if we're going to be able to feed the kids. I was telling him about how the pantry just gets less and less every day and how because of my injury, I don't know what's next for our family. And, and here's what Peter said to me. 
He said, we got you covered. He said, we're going to fill up your pantries. You're going to have enough food to take you to the end of the year and beyond. We're going to pay off all your debt. You will have no more need. And babe, for the first time in my life, I think I broke down in ultimate tears of uncontrollable joy because what a scandal of grace that they would love us this much. That the gospel story that God would so understand and teach and shape our community, that they would lay down all of their stuff, that we could feed our kids. Now, that character does not show up in today's story. But I imagine he's there in abundance. I imagine that that story is a story that was just, just obvious and continual and showing up over and over and over amongst the text that we just read, and we're going to study it and break it down today, but can you just imagine with me for a moment the impact of a gospel-centered life? That's all it is. And so as we break this down today, I'm just going to tell us that this should be us. Like, this is the type of life, the type of calling given to the church as a whole, whether it was 2,000 years ago or it's today, okay? So, that being said, the way we look at this text is through two competing stories. So, one story is going to sound really good, and one story is going to sound really bad. And we're going to contrast and juxtapose those together and see what God has for us in the midst of it. And then in the midst, especially of the second story, there's going to be this thing that's even more unbelievable than someone selling his field and giving it all away, right? There's, there's this moment coming, and if you know the narrative, you're already thinking, yeah, that, that's pretty crazy, okay? If you don't know it, hey, it's coming. But it's one of those things that you get to the end, and I imagine even the people in the story were thinking, like, did, did that just actually happen? Like, like you know, if, if anyone watched the Super Bowl, I mean, wow, none of you liars. This is a, come on, get, get busy. There, see? Yeah, all right, all right. Now, if you watched that thing, and if you did it, then, you know, there's repentance, but... Um, if you watched it, you noticed it was like the greatest comeback in potentially like, no, like sports history. Like it was unbelievable to watch. And so the Patriots were down like, I don't know, like 35 points or something crazy. And then they come back in the last quarter and a half. Is there any Patriots fans in here? Okay. <laughs> so you guys are pumped right now. So you're like, yes, I'm staying at this church. Um, and so the, the Patriots come back and they win this thing. And you get to the end of that thing. And I remember watching and, and, and then like the next day. Just being like, even watching highlights, that didn't really happen. Like, did they, did they really just accomplish that feat? Now, the story we're going to look at today is even wilder. Like, it's, you're going to get to it and say, God, like, what? That was the way you decided to handle this? And we're going to talk about the implications of why as well. So um, let's get into story chapter one. Um, and I just want to give you... Uh, just a context before we jump into the very first verse. It's going to say now the full number. And I want to remind us that the full number of the church is 10,000 plus at this point, right? So they, they went from like, you know, 12 to then 150 to like 3,150. And now they're north of 10,000, right? So, and this has all happened in a pretty compact amount of time. And so God is doing obviously something special. So Acts chapter four, sorry, if you have your Bibles, I forgot to do this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter four. If you do not, uh, we've got Bibles up front here. You don't have to come and get them. Our ushers who are not here, there they are. There, yay for Jake and Curtis, who's not one. But still, any, anyone need a Bible to follow along with us today? Don't feel weird. We do this every week. I want you to read. Huh? No? You guys hate the Bible. All right. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You guys are like nervous laughter. Like, oh, God, I do. Um, Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, 
this sounds very similar to Acts chapter 2, right? So if you're with us through Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it, it sounds really similar. But I want to give up this little nuance, right? That when we studied Acts chapter 2, verse 42, there was about 3,000 people in the church or so, which that's impressive that everyone amongst 3,000 would have one mind, one, one heart, one belief, one common goal. What I found so incredible is we come to this text and we now we've added plus 7,000 members to the church and it's still true, right? That, that there's something about this gospel that seems to unify even as you add more crazies to the bunch, Right? Because the reality is when we start bringing people, like we're all kind of a mess. We all come in with our preconceived thoughts, notions, beliefs, and values. And somehow they added 7,000 more people and said, yeah, same thing. We all think the same, believe the same, same heart, same mind, same mission, same soul, etc., etc. And then we look at ourselves. We cannot look at this text but say, wait a minute. Is that where we're at? But is that where the church is at in the United States of America? One heart, one mind. No. No, we want to come up with excuses, right? And even as I'm reading this text and I'm indicting myself as a Christian that's in the church to say, well, why aren't I united with this, that, and the other? And I want to come up with excuses in my heart to say, well, that's because they believe some crazy stuff. Uh, that's because, well, you know what? I don't really align there. I'm kind of more here and or here. And so let's let that be the reason why I think this is just a crazy idea. And the gospel and the life of Christ seems to point us a different direction. Now, I, I don't mean to say that, hey, all the differences and those little things uh, are menial and unimportant. They are important, and you should know and be resolved and care about and have convictions and study and learn and all that stuff. But I'm saying it says when you look at the Bible, it seems to say those things are extremely secondary to the primary unifying factor of the gospel amongst the people of God. You see, what Jesus accomplished on the cross was he tore down every wall. Not, listen, not just the wall between him and us, right? But he tore down every wall amongst us as well. So when you look at the early church, they're like, listen, the people they had flooding into that thing were no more crazy or no less crazy and diverse than we are. Jews, Gentiles, you had Hellenistic Jews, you had all these different people groups from everywhere, Africans coming north, and they're all combining into this group of 10,000. So the question has to become, man, if they figured it out, it's got to be us. Like, it's, not, it's not, hey, there was some magic potion. It was just, there was something about the gospel. Now, I notice in verse 33, sandwiched in between these two verses on, on generosity is this verse about the apostles preaching the resurrection of Jesus which I think becomes the central, necessary, unifying theme of the people of God is that Jesus is alive. So we can be united in one heart and in one mind, even amongst the differences. Paul would go on to tell us, listen, do not argue over debatable matters. Do not allow and cause each other to stumble over these things, but rather engage, push into community, and unify for the sake of my mission now, also in the text, we see this incredible generosity, which we spoke of already when we first started, that united all of these people had the same mind, and it was to care for all those around them. That, that, that when they looked to the left and looked to the right, and they heard a little tick on the ear, oh, this person needs this, how can I help be the solution? Right? What, what has God given me and provided to me that I could be part of that solution for that person, that family, that friend? Now, this is not new for the church. This goes all the way back to the Torah. This goes back to Old Testament. This is Israel. Israel had the same mandate on them that I think we do on, on us now. And so let's look at Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 5, where God tells them in the law, there will be no poor among you, Israel, for the Lord will bless you in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you for inheritance to possess if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment. So, this has been the heart of God since the beginning for the people of God, is that they would be blessed by God to bless others. 
that there would be no need amongst the people of Israel, there would be no need amongst the people of today's churches, because God will bless so that we could bless others. I think the reason why we do not see this is not because God is not providing, it's that we just don't believe it. And so we have brothers and sisters in need in this very room today that I know of real practical stuff that we can help with. Now, there's this little game that uh, we just played actually at our RC, and I think it's a beneficial thing for you to do as an individual, uh, as as a family, uh, with your children, uh, in your small groups, etc. And so it's called the carrot cake game, and the guy who invented it, his whole idea was that you're taking things that uh, essentially seem by themselves insignificant, and then you bring them together to form something great. And so he hates carrots and flour, I guess. And so uh, coming together to form carrot cake is like this perfect, beautiful picture of the gospel for him because he just thinks that way. And so here's what you do. You take two sets of index cards. And again, I think you should all do this. And on one set of index cards, you write down every resource you have. And it's time, talent, and resource. And so it's like, well, I got an extra 20 bucks a week. That would be a resource. Uh, I'm really good at electricity, right? So that's a talent. I have an extra hour a day in this slot. That would be time. And on and on and on. It can also just be general likes. One of the things I always write down in that pile is my love for Liverpool Football Club, right? Like I'll say, I love this football team so much, it seems like a gift from the Lord, okay? And so um, the other pile, you write down on these index cards all the brokenness you see around you. And it's in your individual life, right? It's stuff that you're, you're battling, you're struggling with. Um, it, it's stuff kind of in your next concentric, into your family, uh, into your neighborhood, into your city, into your world. And, and it doesn't take much, right? We've all got this stuff personally, Right? There's all sorts of kind of brokenness, sin, depression, greed, malice, pride, etc., etc., etc. You need food in your pantry, right? You're worrying about your kids. You're worrying about your kids' salvation. You're worried about, man, am I going to be able to get this on and on and on, right? So we've got that. Uh, we, we've got the problems in our city. Let's, let's talk about just some childhood education stuff. Let, let's talk about uh, problems that we have at all sorts of systemic levels, even nationwide across our state. We've got foster care and adoption issues, 21,000 kids in the system, on and on. There's brokenness everywhere. And so you take that pile and you just write all those things down. Okay. Then you shuffle up each pile by itself and then you randomly pull one from each pile. And you take the resource that you have in a broken part of our world, and you ask yourself, how might God use this piece of resource in my life to help solve this problem? And it is amazing the stuff you are forced to come up with when you draw Liverpool Football Club and childhood education. (laughs) Like, how, how do I take my love for this soccer team and turn it into a care for childhood education? And one of the things that we did is we started a soccer program at a school that Anthony worked for. We said, you know what? These kids, this might be a good way to love them. And so we incentivize them by coming to practice and to games where they get jerseys and fun and snacks and all that stuff. They get incentivized by having good grades in class and no disciplinary issues. And so you ask all the professors and the and, uh, faculty over there, and they're seeing grades go up, and they're seeing kids be better behaved. Like, th- so... I love soccer, so we got together, a handful of us that love soccer, and said, well, how do we utilize our love for soccer even when we're on the pitch with the kids? And they're talking about how much they love Barcelona for God knows why, right? And soccer fans don't even get that joke. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm saying, oh, man, how, how could you? Liverpool's the best. And, and, just ra- and building rapport with these kids. So I am utilizing this awkward love I have for a sport and a soccer team to connect me with a young child that hopefully he strives to be more than he is right now. Now, that's, that it's, right, they seem so seemingly opposite and disconnected, but I guarantee you every one of you in here has been blessed with something, time, talent, resource, that you are supposed to give away to solve some broken issue in our society today. Whether it be a very micro issue or a macro issue. So do your homework, find out what it is, and then do it, right? And then do it. And that's what these people are doing. So notice, this, is, this isn't just a, a financial thing. They had everything that they were blessing others and constantly pushing out on purpose. And I do think it's what we are supposed 
to look like as well. So let's continue on the story. Uh, Thus Joseph, who was, also, who was called also by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I just love this story because if you just read these two verses by themselves, it's just absolutely nuts. You're just, he did what? Like this guy just decided to sell a field and he just gave money to these guys. But honestly, like after what we just talked about, in the context of what's going on because of the gospel in the church, it just makes sense, right? That's, that's why even the first word you get is thus. Like, so all this stuff was happening. This was the culture of the church. This is who they were. So obviously then there's this guy who sold his field and went and gave it away. This is not surprising for us at all. Now, the reality is, is I know some of you in here who own fields, okay? I'll leave it there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't need to sell your field. Maybe, okay? But maybe the Lord's telling you to sell your field. Like, here's the reality, is we, they... Motivated by the spirit and the gospel. So I'm not going to tell you, hey, God, you got to sell your field, or you don't got to sell your field. Listen to the Lord. What's, what's he calling you to? And I'm going to tell you, whatever it is, you need not walk in fear and anxiety because he's going to provide for you. Okay? Like, he, he's just going to do that. Why? Because he wants to continue to bless the nations through you. And so he'll continue that cycle. As it gets moving. So um, we see this thing happen. And if, if I can for just a moment, and listen, if it's your first Sunday and you're just like, God, I'm going to finally go back to church, and I swear if they talk about money, I'm out, right? We're going to talk about money for just a minute, okay? Um, and here's the thing. We, like, never really talk about this, mostly because we just preach through books of the Bible, and, and not every chapter talks about money, right? And so that would just be silly and manipulative, and, and hopefully we're not that, Right? Um, but, I th- but I think I want us to really attach ourselves to the heart of this story in this moment. Because this type of generosity, even as I'm thinking about it, is, is something I long for. And, and, and honestly, like, I long for it for our church. And I know some of you are like, well, please stop longing for that, right? I, I just dream, and I'm a dreamer, and if you talk to any of my staff, they're just like sometimes, like they're just trying to, you know, get some facts or ask me a simple question, and I'm over here, like literally in a cloud, just like thinking about ice cream and, and raisins, you know, like that's how random it is, you know, like just that's the way my mind works. So I, as I dream, though, about our church, I dream of this reality, and I ask the questions then, like what, what are the things that hold us back from this type of reality? I go, why, why, Lord? Like, why am I not even motivated that way? I want to point to a couple things when it comes to money, kind of, kind of comes to our finances, and I often talk about stewardship, about how nothing here belongs to us, right? And, and they, that's right in the text. They, they understood that, that everything that they possessed was ultimately God's, given them by God. And so, man, they, they, they yeah, who am I to hold on to what God has given type of thing. If God has given here, I surely then can pass it forward if he's asking me to do so. And so they're laying it down consistently because they understand that, uh, that God's doing a great thing. Now, what I'm getting ready to say next, I, I know is going to come across as like, like a money grab, and I hate that, and I hate being that guy for a moment, but I think it's a discipleship issue. I think that if generosity does not mark the life of a Christian, I question your discipleship. And, and, God, and I don't even mean that from a judgmental way or a condemning way. I live in that reality all the time where I'm selfish and I hoard and I keep stuff to myself. But I don't want to. So I repent and hopefully move towards generosity instead and try and believe the gospel. And I know some of you guys are marred by previous stories or, or stuff you've heard online. Like, has anyone heard of this guy Creflo Dollar? You guys heard of this guy? There's a guy named Creflo Dollar. He changed his name to match a currency, Right? Like, if this dude lived in Mexico, he would be Creflo Peso. See what we did? <laughs> and what he did is he went to his congregation and said, hey, guys, listen up. I really feel like I need a jet plane. And so he raised within his church 
millions upon millions upon millions of dollars directly from their general fund to buy him a plane, okay? And they did it happily and willingly, praising the whole sick thing. And he's up on stage like, if I want to believe the Lord for a $250 million jet airplane, I'm going to. And I'm like, you're going to hell. Maybe. And so some of us have been shaped by these stories. And so when I say this next thing, please don't put that lens over what I'm saying. But notice this thing. That as these guys are generous and as they're selling to their fields and they have their money and they have their resources, what's the first place they take it? It's to the apostles' feet. Now, I am no apostle. Anthony is no apostle, really, okay? Just kidding. A little burn, a little burn. Um, <laughs> so that was awesome. <laughs> she just said roasted. <laughs> That's a, that he crushing it, dude. Um, we're not, we're not apostles. Uh, but but we, for some reason, God's like, hey, uh, Anthony, Vince, Randy, you're going to be the elders of this church right now. And so, I'll tell you what, we we know certain needs that exist in this community that you guys don't. We know certain uh, needs that exist in our community that you guys don't. Uh, we have certain needs in our church that just aren't being met right now. And so hear me, like, uh, no joke, but I'd say 50% of the man hours that happen from our staff are volunteer. Um, another probably 25 to 30% of that are raised by outside support. Okay, so Anthony still raises about a third of his salary. Andy raises her entire one. Drew raises and has raised for like the last three years about half of his Okay, so in other words, I'm just going to say this. If, if you go to church, you're like, this is your home church. You have a job and income and you do not give. I think you're in sin. Now, God, that sucks to say. And you're like, I'm out, right? Just hear what I'm saying. Because honestly, you're receiving off the benefit of other people's generosity that don't even come here. And that doesn't make sense. And so please hear me. This is not for me. This will not affect my salary one way or another. I'm not going to get a single cent from anything else you give here. That's all set by our elder board and even our leadership down in, in the valley. So that's not what this is. This is we know of needs. We want to provide for them. There's even some here, and we're struggling at a certain level to be able to enter into those things. And so I just want to say my piece there. And I, here's the thing. I don't even know who gives here and who doesn't. So that's not even, I'm not, I'm not looking at any one of you. I don't know. Like maybe once every six months, I accidentally glance at like a monthly giving sheet. I don't know what people give here. So maybe all of you give, but it seems to be that for a church of about 300 plus people, our numbers are quite low. And I get that we have a lot of students and you guys are barely working, you got loans and all that stuff. And, and still, and so again, Please don't hate me. I have people-pleasing issues. And so, uh, <laughs> but I think it's something that you need to talk through with your family and or you're an individual. As we look through this, this crazy model of generosity and say, like, man, am, am I part of this family? Like, is, is, this, is this my family? Is this my home? And then I want, to, I want to bless and to give to that family so that they can continue to bless this city and this world, okay? So uh, that was just a nugget, not the main part of the text, but we never really get a chance to talk about money, and it's right there, so I had to do it. I had to take a swing on Drew was, like, making me, and it was really good. So um, now, story number two. So with this beautiful story of Joseph who does what the church is like, yeah, this makes sense, I'm in, and so let's look at verse five in story number two. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, did I? Which verse? Oh, the entire second story. <laughs> you guys are like, who are these people? All right. Man. Back to generosity. Now, no, it's good. The Lord didn't want me to move on yet. Okay, verse 1, story number 2. Here we go. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So they do the same thing as Joseph. And his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Was it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so this, this, man, this story, what a crazy contrast, right? So you have Joseph Barnabas, right, who sells all his stuff and says, all right, here it is, apostles. Go and distribute it as it's needed to everyone. And then you get this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they do the same thing. And they go and they sell everything, but instead they bring it to Peter. And I imagine the dialogue went something like this. They said, Hey, here you go, Peter. And imagining, I, I would think that, like, you know, you give someone a really good gift and you're just waiting, like, oh, are they going to love it? Are they going to love it? And Peter instead looks at him and says, Why are you the devil? <laughs> Why are you Satan? You know? Why has Satan so consumed your heart and filled your heart that you would lie to him and to the people of God today? And I imagine, just imagine them just. Be, <gasps> Like all that excitement, like what are they going to think? We're going to look so great in front of everybody. They're going to see what we did. Instead, they get called out. And I just imagine they're like, oh, I, um, I didn't, uh, reminded me of my son. Finley, he, uh, I always got to squeeze him in, it seems, once a, <laughs> once a Sunday. But we just switched him to a big boy bed, right? So he was in his crib where he's locked in in his cage, you know, just can never escape, just hitting his cup on the sides and stuff, you know. And, uh, and we just moved into a big boy bed. So that means no gate, meaning he has free reign to enter and to exit as he pleases, which is not great for nap time, okay? And so we do this, and it's time for nap time. And so we, we set him in there. We say, Finley, you cannot leave your bed, okay? You can't go play with your toys. Don't open the drawers. Just stay in your bed, Right? He's like, okay, daddy. Yes, daddy. I love you, daddy. Sweet dreams, daddy. And so I said, great, go downstairs. And I know where his room is. I'm on the first floor and the second floor. I know where his room is so I can, I can tell when there's commotion, right? And so I'm sitting there. I'm just making myself a sandwich, probably something unhealthy in a sandwich. I don't know. And so, um, and I'm making food and I hear, and I hear, and he's slamming drawers and he's opening stuff. He's banging his drum. And I'm like, man, you're not even trying to be quiet. <laughs> Right? Like, dude. And so I'm like, all right, I got to go get him. So I start walking up the stairs, and I'm like, but our stairs are super creaky, and so you hear anyone coming anywhere. Like, nobody could ever rob us. Like, it'd just be like, yeah, dude, I, I know you're there, right? And so I'm walking up the stairs, and I hear him slam a door shut, and I hear his feet move really fast. And I open up the door, and no joke, he's leaping into his bed. <laughs> like, you know, and he's two and a half, you know. He's this big, and he's ready. He leaps. Carl Lewis, just straight into the bed. And he's laying there. And I say, Finn, what happened, man? Why did you get out of your bed? He goes, he's just laying there. He goes, no, just laying in my bed. I go, dude, no. Like, I saw you jump. Like, I saw you midair. And he just keeps denying that he was not out of his bed. And so... Pray for his soul. And <laughs> but that story just rung in my head as I imagine Ananias standing before Peter and just being like, just caught red-handed in a serious lie and probably doing everything he can to get out of it. And Peter's like, hey man, listen, you didn't lie. This isn't to us. The problem's not that you did this to us. The problem, you lied to God. Like, the, the, I'm not, what's about to happen, that's not me. That's God. You, you deceived him. And you, listen, you did not have to. Like, we didn't say everyone had to go sell their field. It was, if God was saying sell your field, you better sell your field. But it wasn't mandatory. It was still your money, still your possession to do with what you want. It wasn't about the gift. It was about the heart and the lie. God judges the internal, not the external. Gosh, we have to remember that. God's looking inside here. And so even all that stuff I just said about generosity and you're in sin. Listen, I don't even know if you're in sin. God judges that. I do not judge that. But God's looking to our hearts as we examine this text and seek to be a people that, that just show the kingdom of God to the world. What's going on in here, guys? And let's, let's not lie to 
God. Let us not deceive him. And we do, honestly, on the daily. Like, it's just a reality. Like, that stuff just creeps up. We screw up. That happens. Thank God for the cross, which we'll talk about in just a moment. See, and when you hear this, listen, you hear hear words like redistribution. This is not, if if you're getting wary, this isn't socialism, right? This isn't communism. It's not capital. It's no, it's just Christianity, like, this is just kingdom of God living. That's, that's what this is. It's, it's a whole other paradigm. It's a whole other ism that we find only in Scripture. Okay. That, that, that is the type of life when I dream for us and I dream for my own life that usually pops up and I, and I ultimately dream about. Okay. God's looking at what's going on here, guys. And listen, I can't look at any of that. And so... Please not, not hear any condemnation here, but only the same pursuit that I'm asking of my own heart, I ask of us as a church. Okay. Now, verse 5, I already gave away the ending. Sorry. I'm like a bad, it's like such a spoiler alert or something. But verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, he lies to the Holy Spirit. He deceives the people of God, and God in, in one of the craziest acts of the New Testament, it's like dead, right there. He's called out, he knows what happened, and then he breathes his last falls to the ground, and then some young guys come in and carry this dude out. It was like a sobering, sobering end of that story. Th- that it would be that serious. I can only imagine if you were one of the young men who had to carry out that, watch that happen, and you're going and telling your friends later, hey, like, this, this just went down. Like, this God is serious. Now, we'll talk more about the wise in just a moment, because it doesn't get any better for his wife. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirits of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Dang. Now, I'm going to be honest. When we said and we decided we're going to preach the book of Acts, this was one of the passages where I was like, I don't really want to talk about that. Like, like how, how do we say, hey, they did this thing so God, right, who can, culturally is always only loving, right, how could he ever do this? Like, how, how could this ever be something that God, this, this amazing, perfect, be- that he would just say, you know what? Nope, too late, dead. To two people in, seemingly in his family, in his church. Why? Now, that's the question I'm going I'm to do my best to answer. But I want us to know, again, this is not new. This has happened before. Let's go back. And this is, right, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Now turn to, well, you don't need to turn to it, but in Joshua chapter 7, there's a character named Achan. Achan does something fairly similar to this, where he keeps back some of the plunder, right? So what he does, and it's very interesting, because the word kept back, that, that Ananias and Sapphira do, is the word nosfizo, and it shows up very sparingly throughout Scripture, except it shows up again in Joshua chapter 7 with Achan. And what happens is that they're plundering Jericho. And God's like, listen, that, that's not for you. And so Achan comes in, though, and he begins to keep all this plunder for himself. And he hides it from God. Hides it. And he hides it from God's people. And God, too, strikes him dead. See, God is serious about this. Now, there's one more story that I think informs this a little bit more. And... You have to hear me. This isn't a thus saith the Lord type of moment. But it's a moment that as I was studying this week, I get continually convicted by. When I start thinking through why would the Lord do this? What is God's heart behind this? And and there are a couple of just easier answers of just saying, hey, it's a pivotal time in the growth of the church. 
And so something like this, if it, were, if it was just allowed, could just easily be spread. Like, oh, this is no big deal. God, God doesn't really care. We can kind of just go halfway. We can be lukewarm. We can, do, we can say and deceive, and it's no big deal. And so God knew, you know what, we've got to shut that down quick because that would spread through this 10,000, most of which we're talking like 9,750 are like new, brand new believers, susceptible to anything they see. So I think that is a real answer. I think God, we have to under, understand his character. That is, it is certainly loving, but it is absolutely righteous and just. And so listen, the, you and I do not deserve to breathe today. Like, and that sounds kind of crazy. Like we, he should, if he wanted, like, he should strike us down right now because we are just completely antagonistic. Now with Christ, that probably changes the situation. But all of you who don't know Jesus, he could strike you down right now. And me too. Because he's holy and perfect and righteous, and we're not. And so what Ananias and Sapphira did, we do every day. We, we kind of lie sometimes. We lie to God. We lie to each other. Uh, we're, we're not great oftentimes in relationships. I've gotten more fights than with my amazing wife than I should. Right? We argue about things. I've got anger issues. There's all, da, 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 all this stuff, and everybody's got their stuff. And because of that sin, like, none of us deserve life. But in God's grace, he gives it to us. That we might seek him and know him and find him and love him and share him. So we look at this story and we think God's crazy. The only thing that makes God crazy is he didn't do this more often. Now that sounds so over the top, adventure, jerk, and I get all that. God is perfect. Perfect, And the only reason he came and did what he did is because of his love. And he created a way that even in the midst of he knew that this end game for all of us is death. Right? One out of one. Everybody's dying. He knew the end game was death. And so he provided a way where eternal life would be with him forever. That's, that, that's, the, that's the love. That's the goodness that comes in. We cannot forget this reality. Now, this last part. And this is the one that and I just feel like the more I study it, I feel like this is honestly like a Garden of Eden 2.0 type of situation. You see, in the, in the beginning, God creates this, this perfection, this world. And then he says, listen, I'm going to create these people. You are to cultivate the world. You are to bless the world. Through you would people know my goodness, my grace, my hope, my love, and on and on and on. Every character of God we can know. And then in the midst of it, something happens. This perfect thing that was going so well, right? Adam's naming the animals. Things are going good. They seem to be hanging out. Imagine they're just frolicking through meadows and stuff. And then someone slithers in. Satan. The serpent comes into the story and deceives Eve. And she eats of this tree that she was not to eat of. And sin enters the world. And then God doles out some punishments and some curses. And, and, and I bring this story over the top of this one. Because kind of the rebirth, in some ways, of God's mission to the world. The church is crushing it at this point in our story. Right? There, again, uh, 12, 150, 3,000, 10,000 plus. I mean, they are doing amazing work. Everyone, they're touching it. It's just like people are getting healed left and right. They're getting favor amongst all the people. And then someone shows up, Satan. And so comes to one of their believers and deceives that believer that they would turn and be filled with him and choose to disobey God, to do not which they were called to do. And so I just wonder that if, as this story was unfolding, if God's like, man, I've been here before. I've been here before. And just like then, there had to be justice. We had to fix some, figure something out. And so there were curses that were laid out to the man and to the woman and over creation as sin entered the world. And now there is this curse of death that I think is given to Ananias and Sapphira because something had to be done. Because God's mission had to continue. Now, 
Where's the good news all in all this? I think it comes in Genesis chapter 3 in the curse of the serpent. Because he goes on to the serpent after doling out curses of the husband and the wife. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the husband and, I, and, and, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your, you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise your heel or something like that. And we, we call the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first moment where we see God announce that he will crush and defeat Satan. So the good news of this is that fulfillment is the central part of why the church is living the way they're living. Because the offspring did come. And the offspring did crush the head of Satan. And his name is Jesus. And he defeated death on the cross. And he rose three days later. And he died for every sin of mankind to draw us back to himself. He gave you and I the opportunity for new life, not just forevermore, but here right now. And so I think as God is looking over, why does he do this? I think it's because, honestly, there's some other things at play that go way beyond just our simple understanding, hey, a couple people died today. And to show that God, who is sovereign over the universe and over his story and how it's shaped, is in a cosmic battle with Satan, and he will always win. And so he crushes Satan's motives to try and destroy. And notice, now this thing is right couched in what? That everything had everyone in common. Can you imagine if that would have happened? If that would have continued to spread? How quickly this common love, this common heart, and this common mission would be lost. And God couldn't let that happen. Because he loved his creation too much to let it be sidetracked by deceit and by Satan. That's why I think it happened. Okay. Because of God's love, full circle. Because God so loved the world, he gave up his only son. He gave up his only son that we could be drawn back. God is on a relentless pursuit for this broken world because of his love and it's because of his love that this moment, which seems so unloving, I think happened. Because he's in the business of redeeming all the world. Amen? Now, I don't know if that's satisfactory for you. It worked for me. Okay. There's probably other reasons. We might get to heaven. He's like, dude, that sermon you gave was stupid. That was way off. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about Genesis. I'm like, yeah, you were. Yeah. I wouldn't say it to God. Jesus comes in, and like the story I told in the beginning, like Barnabas, he lays down everything. He sold all his possession. Listen, guys, if you don't realize this, Jesus existed before everything. He's God. He spoke the world into existence. So hear me, when he came down, he gave up his title, he gave up his family, he gave up his home. He gave up angels worshiping him 24-7. He gave up the world. And then when he comes to this earth, he gives up status. He gives up power. He gives up his life. He, he gave up attractiveness even, the Bible talks about. That in everything, he would lay it down that we would flourish. That's where we see Jesus in this whole story. See, when you, when you sell of your field, when you're generous, what you do is you model the gospel about Jesus who came down to this earth and gave up everything that you and I would be recipients of a love we did not deserve. So when you're generous, you're doing the exact same thing. And that's why it's so important for the church to live like this as a whole, for us as a whole to live like this, because the world is watching and they're just wondering, who are we going to be like? Barnabas or Ananias and Sapphira? Too often I think they look at the latter because the internal stuff we need to work on. Now I ask you guys as I land here an application, who, just out of curiosity, who do I think or who do you think I want you to be? Do I want you to be Barnabas or do I want you to be Ananias and Sapphira? 
Come on. No, wrong. Okay, nice try. Jesus. You're supposed to be like Jesus, Gary. Okay. Have you learned nothing? Okay. What was the question? Don't worry, don't worry about it. Oh, it was a church question. It was a Jesus juke. Um, you guys don't know that? Okay. If you try and be like Joseph, if you leave here today and you're like, man, I got to be more like Joseph, I got to give more, and you just do it because I told you to do it or because Joseph did it, that will last you about three days. Okay. That'll change your behavior for about three days. It will not change your heart. And God judges the internal, not the external. So as much as I joke, Gary, you're amazing. You're practically Jesus anyway. So uh, the idol has to be Christ, guys. We, we don't read this story and say, man, I'm going to be more like this guy, and I don't want to be like them. No, we need to be like Jesus. He needs to become continually the all-consuming passion desire of our hearts, the idol of our minds, because then transformation happens. And listen, it's not behavior modification. It's, thank God I get to share this with the world. Okay, and so fall in love with Jesus more today. I loved our first worship set. I can't wait for the next one to sing with you guys. Give your heart to him. Just pour out, I mean, pour out your praise to him today. Allow the Holy Spirit that lives inside you. Because here's the thing, we always say, I wish I could just live more like Jesus. Here's the idea. He just, he's like, hmm, how can we fix that? I'm gonna go live in you. How's that? Like, is there a better way for us to try and be Christ than to have Christ, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. No. So listen, it's right there for us all to be like Jesus because he's in us. Shaping us, molding us, convicting us, and pouring into us. And so love Jesus, worship Jesus, and then be generous because of it. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the hero of this story, the hero of the day. It's crazy to think of the stuff that even we go through, that, that we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we maybe comp- compare it to times in our life where we're asking God, why did this happen? And God, where are you? And why would this hardship and calamity fall upon me? And all these things. And God, it does not change anything about your love. God, I, it's because you love us. It's because that you love your creation. It's because, God, this, this world is but a blip in the scope of eternity. God, and I know sometimes even from my own heart, I will confess to you that does not satiate my frustration or my hurt or my anger. Lord, would you just in those moments constantly bring me to you and the presence of you in my life and the gospel story, God, that reminds me that you've been at this job since the beginning to win your lost creation back. Lord, would you allow us to be part of that by continuing blessing us individually and corporately here at the church that, God, we would be a blessing to all those around us, that there would be none in need. God, it is a, seems to be an impossible task. But, Lord, in you all things are possible. So, Lord, would you just meet with us today, bring refreshment, bring your presence, bring joy, bring conviction, God, and bring your love. God, that we would just be able to bask in the reality that you did not give up on us, but you relentlessly pursue your people. For those here who came, who don't know you, God, and that you are knocking on the door of their hearts, Lord, we pray, pray that today would be the day of opening, that you would come in and dine with them, that they would know you and you would know, and they would, and you would know them. So Lord, bless our time as we have together at the rest of the service. And be glorified in everything, because even in our weird attempts to try and figure you out, God, we know that you are bigger than comprehension, and God, somehow you still love us. In Jesus' name, amen.